0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to
1: Unemployed
2: unemployed Workers workers Fight Back. back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The
1: Sewer Show between 5.30 and 6.30pm.
2: Here on 3CR 3CR Community Community Radio. Radio.
1: This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions
2: for the unemployed and underemployed.
1: Everyone everyone in in our our community community has has values. values. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. And how are you doing? What's the day today? It's March the something. The 11th, I think. The 11th. Okay. Yes, and hello to
2: Larry and Larissa. I always like saying hello to our listeners because, you know, they give us their most precious resource. You know what that is?
1: What, what's that, their ears? Yeah. Their attention. Their attention.
2: In this day and age, it's a precious thing.
1: It, it's a small accumulation of ears that's going to change the world. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and that's what we're trying to do here, is, um, change. Now, how How are we going to change the world this week?
2: Well listening to some of our alternative candidates for the upcoming federal election. So one of those would be Andrew Johnson, who is with the Reason, the Reason Australia Party. So yeah. we'll hear from him later in the show. And I saw you walk in and wave this bit of newspaper under my nose, Kevin.
1: Oh, look, half the time I don't know what I'm going to talk about. But I was, I was just having lunch uh, yesterday and last Friday's Age was there. And this article said, budget debt to stay, economists. <gasps> oh, yeah, And I... I hate this narrative around the budget debt, how it restricts common sense. Right. And everybody's oh, we can't afford this and we can't afford that because of the budget debt, mm-hmm. which as you and I have spoken about many, many times mm-hmm. – is just the wrong narrative.
2: When you say restrict common sense, as I was walking here today, I saw this little dog with one of those uh, little funnels on yeah, its yeah. head because it had obviously just been to the vet. And that's exactly what you're putting on your head when you talk about the yeah. debt.
1: Well, at least that serves some purpose, that. But the budget debt as a mechanism for trying to make sensible policy decisions... They haven't got their head in, in a cone. They've got their heads <laughs> up their asses, And
2: <laughs> You heard it first here. And in fact, let's start with the debt because I want to think about that from the economics that we use. I really think about the debt as the federal government's investment into the economy so it's an investment it's not a debt and it's not something that the federal government has to pay back
1: debt is something that needs to be paid back right and we don't need to pay back the government for (laughs) investing in our economy it's a transfer of money from the government sector to the private sector every time they spend it's a new dollar created by the government that travels from the government sector to the private sector and it helps the private sector now they say we have to pay it back well we don't No. what happens if the government doesn't pay itself if back? If the
2: government refused to pay back the debt
1: to itself, nothing would happen. <laughs> it would be fine. And and what's more, we talk about it like it's this terrible, terrible thing. We've been right. doing it for a hundred years. Yeah. Um I always like to refer back to World War Two. We ran up an enormous debt after World War Two. Mm-hmm. What happened after World War Two? Did we have austerity? No. No. We had the golden years. <laughs> like like we had this massive debt we and did. we had what's referred to as these glorious fifties and sixties where everybody yes. was living happily ever after, etc. Mm-hmm. So
2: Yes, speaking of the golden years, this is just a little blip. Between 1948 and 1996, they were building an average of about 10 000 to 14,000 units every year of public housing. And since 1996, they've been building about 3,000 a year. So how did they manage to do that just after the war? Well, we're going to talk about
1: how, how this ideology, this neoliberal ideology that uses debt to restrict government spending mm. leads to privatising and all the implications. But before we do any of that, I'm going yes. to play a song. Yeah, so that was uh, Don't Thank Me, Spank Me. Um, a good <laughs> What's the group.
2: connection to economics? I didn't quite get it. Got just a good band
1: that I saw last week. Good local music, you know. Yeah, yeah. There needs to be no connection. So I did say I was reading the paper, and this mm. is from The Age, Friday, March the 4th, uh, mm. and it's an article by Shane White and Jennifer Duke. And this is the typical sort of mm-hmm. misinformation that we get through the orthodox uh, economic yes, language. through
2: the dominant media.
1: The federal government will probably never clear the debt run-up uh, dealing with the COVID-19 recession. Some of the nation's most respected economists predict, warning, only a strongly growing economy and a one-off asset sales will bring it to heel. But most economists question whether returning to the net negative debt position Australia had in 2008 is worthwhile, arguing there is little wrong with carrying some debt. Then it goes paragraph, paragraph, which i are not going to worry about. Okay. Then it says the sustainability of the government's debt position is what really matters rather than a need to drive net back to zero.
2: Okay. This is that deficit dove position again. Yeah.
1: And it goes on, blah 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 blah. But it's, um,
2: that's in-depth reporting from. Well, Kevin. I feel a
1: bit like uh, the young European uh, Greta um, Greta Thunberg. Greta Thunberg, who mm. just goes blah blah blah. I mean, I could <laughs> I could sit here and go through it all, but you know what I mean? It's like yes. we're talking nonsense. We're talking nonsense mm-hmm. now. Um, What I'd like to talk about is the application to the current floods up in Lismore and and the disasters that are happening in the place. It's been on my mind, yep. And they're talking about this $4 billion disaster relief fund that they have. We're Mm. talking about a government pretending to put aside money for Mm. a future fund, like it needs to have savings in its account.
2: Right. So the starting position here, everything that we're talking about and everything we're reading in this dominant media, Kevin and I are thinking... The Australian federal government is a sovereign currency issuer. It means the federal government creates dollars, and it creates dollars when it spends, and it can't create dollars any other way. It has to spend
1: to create dollars. It could do it in an emergency, and yep. this is the thing. We just had a big emergency called, Ooh, the, coronavirus, called the coronavirus, and the government, without any plans, without mm-hmm. any future funds, or without any pandemic funds, managed to conjure up $400 billion plus.
2: Billions! Mm. Nothing
1: borrowed. So we know it can do it. Okay? We've seen
2: them do it just recently.
1: They have an un- unlimited capacity for money. What they mm. don't have is an unlimited capacity for labour, building yes. materials. Mm. Money is not the issue.
2: No. If you hear anyone saying that we can't do X, Y and Z because we don't have the money, that is at best very misguided. Yeah. But if they're saying, well, we've run out of concrete, we've run out of labourers, we've run out of steel, then yes, I'll buy that story.
1: Yeah. Now what they're saying with this four billion dollars
2: billion dollar fund. fund so what? they think the four billion dollars is sitting there in this little savings account.
1: Which of course it isn't <laughs> because if, if if we're at war, we don't run out of money, do we? No. If if like money's not the issue. The issue mm. is the resources. Now
2: So I would feel a lot more comfortable about our government steering the economy and looking out for the welfare of its citizens. Not if they have a flood emergency savings fund, but if they actually had a plan that includes how are we going to respond to these ongoing climate disasters? How are we going to upgrade our communication system so that we have a response within hours, not days? Yeah. And all
1: of those... Bugger the response. How about we have some some (laughs) mitigation stuff?
2: Whatever the solutions are, I want to see the government spending money to bring all the experts together to get some serious planning in place.
1: This requires large-scale government intervention.
2: That's what would future-proof us. It's not this idea of making these, what do they call Like they're called these future funds, is that right?
1: Future funds, like, like yeah. they pretend that they're storing money in account. If you make currency, you don't need to <laughs> save, right? You just need to produce the currency on demand like they did during the COVID pandemic.
2: You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www3 crorg i just doing a quick Google here.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> and I'm looking at this Future Fund thing and it has a bunch of funds in it. So the Emergency Response Fund is another, Disability Care is another, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Land Future Fund, Medical Research. So what they're saying is that we have to put aside money before we can do any of this.
1: Yeah. We know that they don't have to put aside money. I've got
2: to read what they say here. Yep. This is on the website sure. of okay. futurefund.gov.au. Yeah. We are designed to allow the Australian government to save today to meet the costs of tomorrow. It's just such bullshit. It's <laughs> like they don't need to save. This thing was created in 2006. Um, that's,
1: that's the dying years of the Howard government. Uh-huh. Howard was the guy that but he did the Telstra thing.
2: Ah, it's got something to do with Telstra. At the moment, there's about $160 billion with a B dollars allocated to these funds. And you wouldn't believe who the chairman of this thing is. Fill me in. Uh, Peter Costello.
1: Oh, my God. <laughs> the former treasurer of Australia who doesn't know how the economy works. works. No. Okay. Well, it, it, maybe like, he
2: does because he's just given himself a really nice retirement there.
1: Okay. Let's have a look at the Telstra thing. So the yeah. Telstra thing, they sold off Telstra, which used to be called Telecom, which was a government-owned communications agency for mm-hmm. those young'uns on the ones the, uh, <laughs> who don't, don't remember such things.
2: And Back com- in the days yeah. before smartphones, before,
1: wasn't sp- it? Before smartphones. And mm-hmm. uh, the Telecom workers were f- fantastic workers. I've worked in communications mm-hmm. cabling, and yeah. their old work it was just – Beautiful. They took pride. They did in you their know, wires, and they could. It was, mm. um, anyway. So uh, along comes uh, Abbott and Costello, and, buddy <laughs> and, 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 <laughs> Howard and, and all the other idiots who think that we need to save money to future-proof. So the the Telstra was sold off to fund the superannuation of public servants. Which is
2: another big scam, isn't it? So the Australian Federal Government can always meet its obligations (laughs) if they're in Australian dollars. So you can always pay every public servant all their retirement for however long they're going to be retired. Just type into
1: the computer, tap tap tap. Away it goes and money's transferred. This is typical neoliberalism. Mm. They said, oh, we need this money to pay for the superannuation of public servants," which was rubbish. And they <laughs> and they said, "Well, how are we going to get it?" Ah, oh, no. Let's let's flog off a perfectly good public utility. Telecom became Telstra, and they mm-hmm. sold it. Uh, and. You could buy into Telstra as a citizen by buying shares. Now we already owned it (laughs) as citizens. We already owned it because we are Australians living in this country. Right. We didn't need to buy shares in it, and the shares fell in price, so Mm -hmm. they flogged it off. It dropped Mm -hmm. in value, and. Uh, people bought shares and they lost money because the share price dropped. But what they'd effectively done was they'd privatised a public utility. Mm. That's what they loved doing. It was never about the money. It's a
2: privatisation scam. Yeah. And the other problem, which uh, Bill Mitchell, who is an economist that we follow, he points out that the other problem of making these future funds is they do have to go and invest their money somewhere. So the money is real and it does exist and they are investing it just like any superannuation fund. And he says what that's doing is it's driving up the price of assets. So the government, if it, say, goes and invests in real estate, it's helping to drive up, the price, up the price of real estate.
1: Great. So it's counterproductive. <laughs> it's pointless and counterproductive. Oh, what, are, what are we going to do, Anne? How do we tell people? Like, we, <laughs> Larry, Larry, Larissa. Larissa. <laughs> get, get onto this. <laughs> uh. So anyway, we're going to come back to...
2: We're going to come back to Andrew Johnson in just a moment.
1: Excellent. Okay. Well, um, uh, I'll catch you on the other side.
2: Well, today we are speaking with Andrew Johnson, who is running for the Federal Parliament in the seat of Higgins, which covers Melbourne's southeastern suburbs, including Armadale, Kuyong, Pran and Toorak, And he's running as a member of the Reason Party. So welcome to the show, Andrew.
0: Thank you for having me on.
2: Your trade is as a swimming teacher and you have an honours degree in film and TV production. So I figure that's a pretty good combination, creativity and a bit of physicality.
0: (laughs) Yeah, also the aspect of swim teaching. You see children who start with you from the age of three or four years old and then they're up into squads and going off to high school and even a few of the... uh, Students who I've taught in the past now are teachers in their own right as well.
2: Well, you're a breath of fresh air, Andrew, because you're not a lawyer (laughs) by trade.
0: No, no, I'm not. Um, Writing laws and putting laws together, having a bit of that experience in there is important, but the the whole gamut of life could do with some better representation, I think.
2: Now, the incumbent in the seat that you have got your eye on, Uh, is Katie Allen of the Liberal Party. Yes. And in 2019, she suffered a 6% swing against her, which was enough to make Higgins a marginal seat for the first time. And in fact, her other claim to fame is that she's the first Liberal candidate in Higgins to come up short of a majority on the first count. So that means Higgins has been a safe Liberal seat and they haven't even had to use preferences. It has
0: been a very safe Liberal seat. In fact, it's had two Prime Ministers represented here and a Treasurer, a very long-running Treasurer in Peter Costello. It's only ever been held by the Liberal Party and... Only two members, including the current one who's only had one term, haven't ended up with a ministerial position. So it's, it's been a launching pad for liberal careers.
2: So what's your strategy then in running for this particular seat?
0: I've lived in Higgins basically all of my life and I've had the impression, certainly the entirety of my voting life, that what I thought, what I needed and the people that I know and care about didn't matter at all. To our representative whoever it's been in that seat we're going to do exactly what the party wanted all those decisions were being made in canberra at the behest of donors and lobbyists and you could bring any argument you could bring any amount of evidence to persuade them that this is something they should be doing wouldn't matter so i'm really trying to be someone who is talking to the people in the community and wants anyone to come and tell me what matters to them Not just the people who want to vote for me. I want to hear from the people who think that they're never going to vote for me.
2: Mm -hmm. We've put the challenge out there now.
0: (laughs) Yeah. My job would be to represent everyone. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that the voters in this seat and in a lot of seats haven't ever felt.
2: Do you see disaffected Liberals voting for
0: you? I think that there is a real feeling within the community of one, being sick of being taken for granted by the Liberal Party and also... A lot of people have really found that what the Liberal Party used to mean to them isn't what it means now, and they are looking for somewhere else.
2: Now, the Reason Party does not, at the moment, have any representation at the federal level, so you guys are not in Canberra yet. Not yet. (laughs) So could you give us an overview of the Reason Party for anyone who might not know anything about the Reason Party?
0: So the Reason Party has been most active in Victoria. Victoria is where it started. In the Victorian State Parliament is where we do have a seat, which is in the upper house held by Fiona Patton. A lot of people in Victoria will have heard of Fiona Patton. She first won that seat as a representative of the sex party, which caught a lot of headlines through the the name. The sex party really was mostly single issue. It had one particular focus. Um, So it was sex work and... The sort of keeping the government out of people's personal lives favor of things like same-sex marriage. But Reason formed to be a broader platform. A few other groups have joined into the party. It's not just the remnants of the sex party. The cycling enthusiast party have joined. New South Wales Voluntary Euthanasia Party joined Reason and essentially became a big part of our New South Wales branch. At its heart, Reason's two strongest guiding principles are to be evidence-based in their policy making and also to keep compassion as a forefront position.
1: You're saying that you've got other groups joining in with the Reason Party. Uh, one of the challenges facing micro-parties is uh, the fracturing of, of like-minded people when they're voting. Uh, an increasing number of progressive micro-parties can often battle against each other competing for, for a vote. What's your strategy there with trying to to harness that collective potential vote?
0: It is definitely an area that there's a lot of conversation. A lot of people have been feeling unrepresented by the major parties on offer. Reason's record in the Victorian parliament where we've had one seat, the amount of success that Reason's had, its ability to work with other political groups and get things over the line, Some of the things that Fiona has managed to get through in Victoria, things like voluntary assisted dying, she really led the charge on, um, protest exclusion zones around abortion clinics, decriminalisation of sex work, which is a thing that came through only within the last month in Victoria. So very rarely can a party with only one seat get so much done. You're listening to 3CR
2: 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au.
0: Climate change is is a big thing.
2: Andrew Johnson, who is with the Reason Australia Party.
0: I think anyone who's really serious about the future of our society and the future of our planet is on board with wanting to do something about climate change. And also then even as a secondary thing the economic aspects of it. There are going to be jobs and there is going to be economic activity associated with that transition. The world is going that way, whether Australia decides to get on board or not. And we can be part of that or we can miss out.
2: Can you tell us about how you see the links between climate action and corruption?
0: I mean, the first and very obvious one is comparing the action we've had on climate change to the numbers of donations that have been given by fossil fuel industry groups to the major parties that have been in power. It's pretty hard to argue that there isn't a link between those. I think political donations are really, really an issue that we need to tackle. Um, At the federal level in Australia, they are the weakest restrictions and guidelines on political donations in the whole country. Every state has stronger restrictions on political donations in the federal level. To have your federal level be your weakest on that is really pretty hard to justify. Mm. The research in that area I've been doing has been looking at things like the work done by the Centre for Public Integrity. Um, Michael West's journalism has been talking a lot about the, uh, the dark money, the donations that we don't know where they came from. The most famous of those at the moment being Christian Porter's million dollar Legal fund. Yeah. Trust for his legal fees. <laughs> if uh, if it was a blind trust, he wouldn't know where it was going, but he knows where it's going um, to him. <laughs> and one of the things that I think is really important is that it's not just actual corruption, but the perception of corruption. Because as soon as that happens, people disengage from politics, their trust is gone. And when people are disengaging from democracy, it stops working properly. Mm-hmm. You speak to a lot of people who say I'm not that into politics and it's affecting every aspect of their life, but they feel totally powerless because they think, well, if I don't have millions of dollars to throw at them, no one's going to listen to me.
2: I wonder if you would extend your thinking to not just corruption as a legal definition, but all of the game playing that goes on that's actually legal.
0: Absolutely. Part of my policy suite that I'm quite uh, strong on is a pretty significant reform of the lobbying industry. For instance, if you are lobbying, you're supposed to be on the lobbyist register. And if you are found to have been lobbying without being on the register, the main penalty for that is deregistration. Huh? Yeah. Gee, that's going to have a lot of effect, isn't it? It's not really tackling the issue properly. And things like um, you only are considered to be an official lobbyist if you're working for an external lobbying firm. If you work in-house at a company, with your only job being to lobby, but you're not working for an external lobbying firm, you don't come under the classification of being a lobbyist, which is just absurd. Yeah,
1: I've run for a, a microphone uh, myself in the past, and the coverage, the media coverage that uh, is given during an election only ever goes to the majors, the Labor, Liberal, the Greens, and maybe somebody else if they're controversial. The ABC, for instance, will never bother interviewing the Reason Party uh, or even the new liberals can you see some sort of a um, platform where uh, prior to an election an organization like the ABC is obliged to air the views of registered parties and give them some coverage?
0: Absolutely in fact part of my um, my proposal for the way of replacing political donations with a different system is that is publicly resourced not just publicly funded. some is money but some is in access to, some airtime on ABC, TV and radio, government funded websites that can present every party's position and messaging on an even playing field. Even government providing venues for debates and then televising debates that have to include not just the two major parties. I'm James Juniper. I'm an economist
1: at the University of Newcastle. And you're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on Radio 3CR.
2: You also have a job guarantee at the forefront of your campaign. And people often mean different things when they talk about a job guarantee. So I was wondering how you might describe it.
0: For me, a job guarantee, and I'm tending to talk about it as a Commonwealth job guarantee, would be a policy whereby the government would guarantee that anybody who is willing and able to work and can't find an appropriate job in the private sector would be guaranteed a government job. When we have a situation, as we do, where there is not enough jobs for everyone, there just simply isn't enough jobs for everyone to have one, But there is certainly work to be done. There is things in our community that we would benefit from doing. And a lot of them fall into the category of they wouldn't make a lot of money for someone. So the private sector are less interested in them. But there is great value to be given to the community at large. So it's the perfect place for government funded. So the jobs that the job guarantee would provide would not compete with the private sector. It's not the government providing labour at a lower cost to private businesses in the way that Work for the Dole and those sort of programs that are uh, not particularly good for people. <laughs> I was
2: going to ask you um, how you would reassure unemployed workers that this is not just another Work for the Dole program.
0: And it's, it's a very legitimate concern because some of the ways that those programs have been run have been pretty hideous. Mm. There've been programs that have been run without the idea of people at their heart. It's been treating the economy as an ends rather than a means. And people are the ends, the economy is never the end. An economy that doesn't help people is pointless.
1: What sort of jobs are we talking about?
0: Well, to an extent, that would be up to the local communities. So the way we would structure this job guarantee is that the federal government would be paying for it because they've got the power of the public purse. But the job selected would be made at a local community level with input from the community, including the people who are going to be part of the program. So it could vary significantly across the country depending on what different areas need Um, But some examples of the sort of things, caring jobs, providing the extra care and support for um, at risk groups, groups like elderly groups or young people or people with disability, the stuff that's not you need a qualified nurse for, but the sort of things that are enrichment of life that you don't necessarily need special training. So if you're talking
1: the aged care uh, section, you're talking about companions or assisting um, the trained professionals, just being able to provide a broader service than what's currently available.
0: Yeah, jobs that are advantageous to the environment, similar to in the US, um, FDR's environmental cause that came to be as part of the New Deal to get out of the the Great Depression. To an extent, it can be a bit of a sky's the limit sort of thing. Whatever a community needs people to do to help them, but hasn't had the money for.
2: Yeah, I often think of the job guarantee as a, a policy which can help us redefine what work is.
0: Yeah. One aspect of that that might be, to some people, one of my more controversial uh, opinions that I hold, (laughs) I think that being the primary carer for a child, certainly up to school age, there is no good reason why that is not considered work that benefits the community. The raising of children as well-adjusted, well-adapted, rounded people, pick me something that gives us more value as a society than that.
1: I had this conversation just recently where... They say but so you're suggesting that the mothers should stay at home in the kitchen with the kids. But these days it's quite conceivable that person could be the father or it could be shared. Mm. So if if we have government assistance for childcare, couldn't we have government assistance for a stay at home parent? Is is that what you're suggesting?
0: Absolutely, yeah. And I use the term primary carer advisedly. And I include, you know, adoptive parents and other Um, Members of the family, there are times when grandparents are the primary carers.
1: If we're talking about this job guarantee, which is paid for by the federal government, but which is administered locally, uh, what level do you see people on the job guarantee being paid? Is it a flat rate or are there a variety of pay levels?
0: The the proposal we have at the moment would see that the job guarantee rate being a flat rate. The idea of it creating sort of competition within itself, for the more high-paying jobs within it. it has the potential to erode some of the the structures and the advantages of it. Um the rate of pay we would want to be a genuine living wage, a rate of pay that allows you to live an engaged life with the community. Does does this then
1: become the minimum
0: wage? It becomes the de facto minimum wage because any job that's paying less than this you would be likely to quit that and join the Job Guarantee instead.
1: You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment
2: and underemployment here
1: on 3CR Community Radio.
2: There is a bit of a trick to the Job Guarantee, Which is you do need to design the job very carefully because on the one hand, as Andrew was explaining, you don't want to compete with the private sector for workers and on the other hand, you don't want to be undermining the public service. So you design your jobs very carefully to be jobs that are not currently being done but that would be desirable for a local community.
1: For a more caring community. I like the idea of having more care workers. Mm. Like just the whole um, aged care thing at the moment, it's just been shown to be so, so inhuman. Yes, and
2: but be careful there too because what we really want to do is be paying more people to be doing uh, qualified work in those situations. So we actually want more qualified workers. We don't want job guarantee workers filling in the, the holes but what you could have as a job guarantee job is that would not be the person who's lifting the elderly resident out of bed and helping them to shower that's not the person who's giving the elderly resident their meds but it could be the person you know have a bit of a conversation and well they could just be scouting
1: about in, a, hmm. in an aged home just making sure everybody's okay checking yep. to see if everything's fine you know uh, just giving people company.
2: So it is what they call the caring economy that might see job guarantee jobs, caring for environment, caring for country, as well as caring for our fellow human beings.
1: And people complained about that, go, oh, we can't afford it. We can't afford not to. It's ridiculous. But don't give a a And
2: the other thing that I liked hearing Andrew say was pointing out once again that the job guarantee is nothing like the Work for the dole program, which people who've been through that might be a little bit traumatized by job creation, so-called programs. But the job guarantee is very, very different because as he was saying, it's based on a very different philosophy. The job guarantee comes out of that philosophy of the right to work, as opposed to work being as punishment. <laughs> yeah,
1: and plus you're getting paid. Uh, we we estimate the job guarantee would be paying somewhere between forty and fifty grand per annum mm-hmm. currently. So that's like that's like a good minimum wage. Yes,
2: if you're on work for the dole, you're at below poverty payment. So that's a huge difference between the programs. Yeah. And also, if you're on Work for the Doll, you don't have a choice really about what kind of work you're doing. You don't have a choice of how many hours you're doing. And you don't have much choice about where you're doing the work. And the job guarantee, it's designed to to be suitable for the person. And you have a say in negotiating it all.
1: Do you know what it's designed to be? It's designed to be human. It's designed (laughs) to be inclusive. It's designed to be social. And... Maybe this is just me, but this whole era of neoliberalism is Mm -hmm. now beginning to eat itself. And I think people are sick (laughs) of people putting themselves first and telling everybody else to go and get stuffed. And we all need to be a bit more caring and and inclusive. And this is a caring and inclusive and very affordable Mm -hmm. uh, program to run. So anyway, we're going to come back to...
2: We're going to come back to Andrew Johnson in just a moment. Excellent. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Yeah, so the job guarantee is a way of guaranteeing an income at a livable level, and competing in the same policy space is another idea which is known as the universal basic income or the basic income. Do you have any opinions about a basic income?
0: There's a lot of things I like about a UBI or a basic income. I think there are two main reasons that I lean to a job guarantee over a UBI. The first is the the research that shows that a very significant part of the damage done by unemployment is not just based around the financial side everybody thinks first about if you're unemployed you've got no money and isn't that terrible but the aspects that affect people in losing the feeling of of purpose of feeling like you're useful and part of the community and that has a bigger effect on people than the lack of money and such a common question at a at a party or something what do you do and feeling like you don't want to answer that question one of the most important aspects to me of the job guarantee is that it's focused on real useful work.
1: There was a fellow I met a while ago who uh, set up a, an IT business back in the day and managed to sell it quite successfully uh, and, and was able to retire at a very young age. And I met him at parties and I asked him, what do you do? And he said, oh, I'm in this very fortunate position where I've been able to retire early, etc." And it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, whether you're well off or, or struggling. The, the concept that you're actually contributing in some meaningful way to uh, your society is important. So we went through the whole thing of saying, no, you're leading some social experiment into the better ways of using uh, leisure time for the betterment of <laughs> we, we had to come up with some sort of title for him rather than to say that he was some slack bastard sitting on his ass. So people want to feel useful.
0: Yeah, that matters to people. And I think that The aspect of the job guarantee that's providing people with meaningful contribution to community is very important. So that's one of my two main reasons. The other one is that it's likely that a UBI would have a significantly higher inflation risk. So there is a potential there for it to not work as well economically. If rent seekers know that everybody in the community has just got this much more money, then that's how much more they can charge people and get away with it. Um, when you talk about UBI, I am more attracted to UBS, Universal Basic Services. Mm. So not so much about chucking money around and saying just having a lump of money is going to sort everything out, but providing the things that people need.
1: So like that's free transport, free health care, dental care. So we're talking about the, um, the job guarantee effectively becoming the de facto minimum wage, because if you're doing a job that's paying less than that, you're going to... Uh, look at the job guarantee as a better option. That means that all of our um, food delivery services and, and Uber drivers, etc., who are doing these uh, casualised gig economy jobs uh, out of necessity, um, are going to leave that market and work for the government doing uh, some, some useful basic services. What effect will this then have on our economy in terms of things like uh, these services that are currently being provided by very um, insecure workers?
2: Get your own damn pizza. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I think probably a job guarantee would require the companies that want those workers to do that work for them to perhaps have to offer some slightly better enticements to get enough people sticking with it to make their business model continue. Do you mean they
1: won't be able to exploit them as much as what they have been? Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's probably a good way of putting it. There might be an adjustment uh, in the uh, in the economy. It's not going to be inflationary. It's going to be this one-off adjustment. There's less people available for insecure work. And therefore, if you want those services, you might have to pay more.
0: I, w- I wouldn't expect it to be inflationary more so than any other change of, of, um, of working environments.
1: Is, the, is your uh, understanding of the job guarantee that it's a, a locked-in full-time job at the minimum, minimum wage, or could it also be uh, a, a part-time or casual uh, arrangement?
0: No, I could certainly have a part-time or casual arrangement. Um, I think full-time work doesn't work for everybody. And if you're then going to say, well, all those people get excluded, you're not doing the job guarantee properly. Everybody who wants to work and there is things that they can do, find ways to make that work. The job guarantee has got to be flexible in that respect. Also, one thing that we are quite keen on is the job guarantees, its potential for introducing things like, a four-day week. That's an area I'm quite keen on, the idea that five days a week is the right number to work. It's an archaic idea. (laughs) There's nothing magical about five days on, two days off being correct for human beings. It's just what we're used to. And when we're in a situation where there are people looking for work and that there is people saying we're doing too much work, there seems to be an obvious answer in there in... (laughs) reshuffling the amount of things like that and giving people back more time more family time more leisure time and all the advantages that come with that yeah yeah we're supposed to be working towards making life better for people but at some point around the 80s we sort of stopped doing that the work-life balance was moving in that direction and pushed back the other way and mm-hmm. we need to get back onto that
2: that work-life balance that keeps getting held in front of us as a carrot <laughs> <laughs> yeah You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. For a party that I had understood has a lot to do with civil liberties and keeping government out of people's lives, I'm very pleasantly surprised to hear you talking about quite a lot of government planning and government um, funding.
0: With the Reason Party, I think quite a few people have got slightly the wrong end of the stick in terms of libertarianism and its relationship to the party. Um, We have supported a number of things that have aligned with libertarianism without being wedded to libertarianism as an ideology. So things like voluntary assisted dying, um, decriminalization and some aspects of legalization of drugs, we're in favor of cannabis legalization and also particularly the areas around sex industry decriminalisation and getting restrictions and legislations out of it, we favour the idea of not stopping people doing something unless there's a good reason to. Again, coming back to looking at evidence and compassion and... Where
2: would you sit on the vaccine mandates?
0: On the vaccine mandates, I think the evidence very much shows that without them, damage is being done to people, so... That's where we come into the idea of it being something that is legislated because not doing that is going to hurt people. Mm -hmm. Like going back to things like seatbelts and airbags, it is not your choice legally whether to put on a seatbelt or not, but it does a lot of damage to people when you don't. So, So we're not wholesale libertarianism in the way that government should entirely get out of my life. It depends how you define libertarianism. I think that if you have the public good in mind, you're not a hardcore libertarian.
2: We're trying to pigeonhole you, Andrew. We're having trouble.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's Well, one other aspect on that topic, relating particularly back to the job guarantee, is there really is an aspect of the job guarantee that is small government, which I think sounds counterintuitive at first because it's a large spending sort of thing there, but should appeal to the... um, the Conservatives' mind of wanting small government and wanting less government interference, if you like, in that it's a program that you set it up and then the government is taken out of the picture. Mm-hmm. So they set it up and then it's hands-off, so there's less government decision being made. And one of the important areas where that comes back to is the aspect in which the job guarantee would be counter-cyclical in that when the economy is doing well and private business is doing well and they're hiring more people people come off the job guarantee so government spending goes down when we hit the rough times and people are being laid off they go straight onto the job guarantee if they can't find other jobs and government spending goes up so the stimulus that goes into the economy that we've seen in things like job keeper or going back to the rudd government's famous 900 lump sum happens Automatically, based on what's happening in the job market rather than a government having to decide, do we go now, don't we go now, how much do we do, what do we do? It takes all those decisions off their plate. So in a way, it is a small government policy as well.
2: And we have talked about the job guarantee as an automatic stabiliser on this show before, and that's what you're talking about. And I hadn't quite thought of how, yes, that is a way of seeing how government isn't sort of micromanaging.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely.
2: I love your visionary and creative approach with uh, using these macroeconomic policies. So I just had to wonder, how did a a film production person and a swimming teacher get into macroeconomics?
0: Through through being someone who is generally politically engaged. I've been for quite a long time.
2: Yelled at the TV. <laughs> I,
0: I talked a lot about politics and I complained a lot until I got to a point where I said, I should start actually doing something about this. And that's when I joined a party and and I got onto the policy committee and was involved in writing policy. And that's led me to being a candidate. Mm-hmm. I first started getting broadly more educated on um, macroeconomics through friends who'd started getting in it. I'd heard the word MMT kicking around and I hadn't really found out what it meant. And then we started talking about things and then we started watching lectures online by professors and reading articles and found it very, very dense. Um, before we, we got on, we were mentioning the, uh, the PEGS Institute, which is a, a body that I was involved with founding.
1: Mm. Now, what does, what does PEGS stand for, for for our listeners?
0: It's the Pragmatic and, and empirically guided Solutions Institute, which sounds a little bit highfalutin. We uh, we admit we'll put a link to Pegs
2: in the show notes.
0: Yeah, that would be good. Um, it was the ideas that we wanted, looking for things that really were going to work and were doable and achievable. We make generally short and succinct, you know, layman's terms videos explaining concepts that can be a bit hard. To get into
2: what is your range of pragmatic ideas going beyond MMT?
0: My biggest things are political donations um, and also the phenomena of whoever spends the most money wins the election. The,
1: the whole Clive Palmer thing.
0: Yeah, um, things like truth in political advertising. The idea that it's permissible for a candidate to deliberately and bareface lie to the public is part of their political campaigning, I don't think serves the public interest in any identifiable way, really. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: So I really appreciate your time and I wish you all the best for your campaign heading up to the next federal election.
1: Yep. So just remember Andrew Johnson running for the Reason Party in the seat of Higgins at the next uh, federal election. Nice to speak to you, Andrew. Thank you very much for
0: having me on. It's been an enjoyable chat.
2: There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855 AM. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au We now present the Pegs production titled Unemployment is a Deliberate Choice. You might recognise the voice here.
0: Unemployment is a deliberate choice, not by the people who are unemployed, but by governments the world over. It is their intention that a significant portion of the community are always unemployed, and they undertake policy to specifically ensure that a large number of people who want a job cannot get one. As part of this, they choose to use a definition of full employment, that means three to 6% unemployment. This allows them to declare that they are pursuing full employment, while it is their policy that if unemployment falls below 3%, they should deliberately engineer job losses. We must remember also that unemployment means people who are actively searching for work. So people who have given up the search or cannot work are on top of this figure. This definition of full employment taken by governments and central banks comes from a concept called the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, or NIRU. The idea is that if we don't keep a large pool of people unemployed at all times, then inflation will increase. The story runs that if every single individual was employed, any new jobs will have to offer higher wages to entice any workers away from their existing employment. The model says that when this happens frequently across the entire economy, it creates a chain reaction where wages are constantly increasing. When there are workers available who do not currently have employment, then this inflation doesn't occur because they're willing to take employment at whatever the market rate is. The problem is that Nairu has never been shown to exist in the real world. As unemployment rates fall, the constant warning of inflation gets louder. But even during times of record employment, the inflation never materialises. Central bank officials have even had to testify under oath that Nairu is not reflected in reality. But this doesn't stop politicians and officials using it to justify austerity to fit with their ideology when they know they won't be prosecuted for deliberately lying. Something that adopting Nairu definitely does achieve in the real world is helping to keep wages low by always having a large pool of people who are desperate for work and are therefore more likely to accept poorer wages and conditions. There are people in society who benefit immensely from this for their own personal fortunes. Keeping this deliberate unemployment quiet is very useful for people who want to declare that unemployment is the result of laziness and bad choices by the people it affects and to justify subjecting them to poverty and demeaning measures. Most unemployed people don't lack a job because of their own failings. Even during the peaks of economic booms, the level of job seekers always exceeds the level of job vacancies. People lack employment because the government has made sure they can't have employment. Unemployment is a failure of government to the people it is supposed to serve. Unemployment is a scourge on society. It erodes people's health, causes societal degradation, and by decreasing the money available to people in the category most inclined to spend rather than save, it weakens the overall economy. No resource in any human society ever has been more valuable and useful than what human labor can achieve. Ensuring unemployment is to deliberately waste this resource and the copious real-world value it could deliver to the people in a community.
2: Thank you, Pegs. You can find more Pegs Productions by searching YouTube for Pegs Institute.
1: You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, here on 3CR Community Radio. Very good. He sounds a very reasonable person, Andrew Johnson. He's he's in the right party then, isn't he? Yes.
2: (laughs) I just wanted to mention before we head out here, Kevin, do you recall that quite recently you and I went to a two-day workshop called Rethinking Capitalism? Ah,
1: yes, yes. Um, Which
2: was run by our friends out of Adelaide.
1: The Sustainable Prosperity Action Group, SPAG.
2: Yes, Gabrielle Bond and Stephen Hale. They are doing another version of this in Hobart soon. Like Facebook would not let them advertise the event. Yeah, I heard that. Now, what's going on there? I don't know. I think Facebook maybe doesn't like us to be rethinking capitalism.
1: Ah, rethinking (laughs) capitalism. Second
2: and third of April, Larry and Larissa, if you know anyone in Tasmania who'd like to do a bit of rethinking of capitalism.
1: That was a really good little seminar we went to and it came off the back of the, the much larger one that we went to back in... 2020, yes, January 2020.
2: Yes, when there was a big conference, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So good. there are hundreds of people into this, and uh, you get sort of a personalised version when you go to these workshops, and you can find them online if you just Google "rethinking capitalism, sustainable prosperity," and it'll come up.
1: But um, we've got to go because uh, because you we have Vicky banging at the door, and um, uh, we've taken up too much time. In two weeks' time, see you again. Anne. We'll see you again. Catch gotcha. you.
2: You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back.
1: Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of the Sewer Show on 3CR.
2: Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au.
1: We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Anne.
2: And I thank you, Kevin. Oh, no,
1: the pleasure was all mine.
2: Oh, no, Kevin, the pleasure was all mine.
1: You mean all the pleasure was yours?
2: Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one.
1: <laughs> well, if you took all the pleasure, that means I, there's no pleasure for me at all. And I, oh. I quite enjoyed myself. So if you've got all the pleasure, then what, I had no I had no pleasure? I
2: think we should share the pleasure.
1: <laughs> well, we're going to have to share the pleasure because, you know, like, I don't mind you having pleasure. as great. great. You have as much pleasure as you like, but don't take all the pleasure. Well, it was very pleasurable, so I'm
2: glad that it was pleasurable.